Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Politics, the New Books Network podcast. Today on the show, we have MSNBC anchor and political analyst Steve Kornacki, who has just published The Red and the Blue, uh, published by uh, Echo, an imprint of HarperCollins. Steve Kornacki, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Now, The Red and the Blue zeroes in on the politics of the 1990s and how they have shaped our politics today. And it strikes me that the 90s is a political period that hasn't been treated as very uh, historic or seminal. There's, there's no great war. There's no economic calamity. I mean, there's, there's weird things like impeachment, um, but there's sort of, it's sort of like an oddity as opposed to something that's all that uh, titanic. We, we, we would look back 100 years from now, you, you wouldn't look at that as the way you would look at you know, the Andrew Johnson impeachment, for example. But you are arguing that that period is quite influential to in explaining where we are today, correct? Yes, exactly. I mean, that's the um, that's the title of the book, The Red and the Blue, to me, is the story of the 1990s. It's It's the story of the decade that that created those colors, at least in terms of the political meaning of those colors. Um, it, it's a decade, like you're saying, that on the surface, it was peace and prosperity and great television and great movies. And you know, America was working, you know, it, it seemed like on the surface. Um, but our politics were changing in some, some deep and I think fundamental ways um, that essentially forced voters to choose sides, to, to choose sides between Democrats and Republicans, to choose sides between red and blue. Um, that's the idea in the book. And, and I think that the, the major thing that happened in the 1990s was that politics was nationalized, um, that it, uh, it, 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 it synced up with a um, rapidly changing, rapidly you know, transforming media environment where you were getting away from the uh, you know, the old big three networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, you had an internet that was, that was coming into being, you had cable news, you know, CNN had been around for a little while, but it really kind of came into its own in the nineties. And then you ended up with Fox news and MSNBC created by the end of the decade, MSNBC was a little different back then than what it would become, but you had the framework there. Um, and I, I really try to tell the story with, uh, you know, with two sort of major protagonists, Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich. And uh, the, the story of Bill Clinton is taking his party to what it thought was the promised land. You know, he got elected president in 1992. The, the, at the start of the 90s, um, the term that was in vogue was the, uh, the Republicans had an electoral lock on the presidency. That's what the, the perception was heading into the 90s. You know, Reagan had those landslides, 49 states, 44 states. Bush senior had 40 in 1988. Um, and Clinton was able to L between the South and the West. Yeah, it was, you know, it was just you had national elections, that, at least from a presidential election standpoint, that would look like consensus. Um, you know, Massachusetts 
went for Ronald Reagan twice. You know? <laughs> um, things like that were possible. And the flip side was, um, if the presidency was seen as this et- eternal, almost Republican institution, um, the Congress was, it was the permanent Democratic Congress. It had been decades since Republicans had a majority in the House, and they hadn't even been close. And, and Newt Gingrich, of course, ultimately leads Republicans there. And, and, and the book is sort of the collision of Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich, Newt Gingrich having transformed the Republican Party, and, and what that collision unleashes in our politics, how the country reacts to it. And I think it builds to that 2000 election when red and blue for the first time have meaning, when it's a perfect tie election, and when those divisions in the country just become clear and, and, and unmistakable. And, and I think that's the world we were kind of left with and are still living with. Now, if, to focus on Bill Clinton and Duke Gingrich, these are two very colorful personalities. I mean, you could argue perhaps that some of these political dynamics might have occurred regardless of who got elected to what. But you can't deny that Clinton and Gingrich are both unique figures. And if it, if it wasn't them, certainly politics would not have proceeded exactly as we have seen them proceed. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, I, I do think there is a, a certain inevitability to sort of the way politics um, uh, sort of worked themselves out. Um, it didn't have to happen when it happened. It didn't have to happen how it happened. It didn't have to happen um, with the specific triggers that, that, that triggered it. Um, but Newt Gingrich figured something out. Um, you know, I think in the, you know, when he came to Congress, really, in the late 1970s and, you know, through the 80s as he completes this, just when you look back at it, an amazing, whatever you think of him, it's an amazing, improbable, unlikely rise um, uh, from where he begins. He begins as just a total gadfly. You know, Republicans in the House don't even take him seriously. And he's telling them he's going to lead them to the majority someday. And, and on so many levels, that seems that seems like a crazy thing for him to say in the late 70s and early 1980s. Um but he, he understood more than most uh, uh, people in politics, his own party, Democrats included. He understood um, the way media was changing and the way that was going to make the nationalization of politics possible. What Gingrich saw in those early days was he saw a, a country that had you know voted overwhelmingly for Richard Nixon in 1972, 49 states as well for Richard Nixon, more than 60 percent of the vote. And Gingrich is looking at a house where, you know, Republicans are, are, are 80 seats deep in the minority. And, and Republican leaders don't even you know, seem to have given up on the idea of, of taking a majority. And, and Gingrich said, you know, basically, look, if, if you can make voters all across the country see in the Democratic candidate in their backyard the exact same thing they saw in George McGovern, you know, Republicans will never lose another election. And, and the key to that was, um, it, 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 it was he said, definition and contrast, you know, define the Republican Party, define the Democratic Party, make the difference between the two of them clear and deep, make it about values, make it about culture, um, and, and then drive that difference, define that difference with your actions, you know, basically partisan warfare in the House. Um, what is the percentage in, in compromise? What is the percentage in, in uh, hey, if the Democrats want the tax hike of 10 percent, you know, negotiating them down to 5 percent? That's not a victory. That's that's raising taxes. That's telling voters you'll do the same thing as Democrats. Um, and that's the, the shift in culture that I think Gingrich very slowly but very surely brought Republicans around to um, in the House. And, and there were all sorts of feedbacks that he encountered along the way. Feedback. Um, uh, from voters, Republican voters who were watching this on on television or uh, um, 
or through talk radio where, where they were eating it up and they started asking other Republicans in Congress, why aren't you like Newt Gingrich? Why aren't you fighting like him? Why aren't you going after the Democrats like him? Um, and he just sort of affected this 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 change um, in, in how Republicans on Capitol Hill um, related to Democrats. And then ultimately, when Bill Clinton comes in, you know how they treated a Democratic president. Now, if you read uh, Rick Perlstein's Nixon Land, he would argue that Nixon created that polarization, Southern strategy uh, and, and all that. Uh, there are plenty of people on the left that will cherry pick certain things of Reagan, uh, the state's rights speech in Philadelphia, Mississippi, talking about welfare queens uh, to say this has been going on a long time. But you argue that the Congress of the 70s and the 80s wasn't as uh, didn't practice the kind of scorched earth politics that Gingrich was promoting when he first joined Congress uh, before he became speaker. I think that's exactly right. And that's one of the, the sort of, um, I, I guess, distinctions I try to make here. And that is, yeah, the sorts of tactics you're talking about aren't, aren't specific to the 90s. They've, they've been around for a long time. The idea of division in this country, obviously, you know, a country that fought a civil war once, it, it has been around for a long time, too. Um, what I think is specific in particular to the 90s um, is how all of this synced up with political party. And, and the House of Representatives that Newt Gingrich came to um, and the Congress, really, that he came to had liberal Republicans in it. Um, you know, in New York State, um, when Gingrich was there, uh, there was a senator, Jacob Javits, who every six years would run for reelection. Um, he would run on the Republican Party line and he would run on the liberal party line um, simultaneously. Um, that that type of republicanism still existed. Even Rudy, Rudy Giuliani had the Republican liberal uh, double. Right. And in the, in the liberal line. Absolutely. It, it was, you know. Um, this was not an unheard of thing in the Republican Party, and um, nor was it on the Democratic side unheard of to have conservative Democrats. And, and you know, obviously, the South was was still filled with them, and the Southern delegations uh, were still filled with them. And what what changed, I think, in the 1990s was that that all sort of you know that all sorted out. Um, you know, Gingrich said the Republican Party needs to be the term he used was a cons we need to offer uh, the vision of America as a conservative opportunity society that is opposed to a liberal welfare state. That needs to be the difference between Democrats and Republicans. And it essentially meant you 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 could and should do away with the, the sort of the liberal Republicans uh, of the old days because there was no room anymore for um, a lot of that vision of government. And um, but it meant that he would also presumably attract those conservative Democrats from the South. And you started to really see that that really did just work out in the 1990s to the point that <clears throat> I think what was one thing that was so dramatic about the 2000 election was not just seeing the entire South Republicans, seeing the entire South red. Um, it was realizing you had two Democrats there, President and Vice President Clinton and Gore. Both of their states, Arkansas and Tennessee, were part of that red. And the promise of Clinton and Gore at the beginning of the decade to Democrats was they're going to win back the South. They're going to make the South competitive for Democrats again. And by the end of the decade, not only could Al Gore, you know, did he fail to carry a single Southern state, um, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton going off to continue their political career. They didn't think to go back to Arkansas. They went to New York. They, they recognized those distinctions, too. The opportunity for Democrats after the 90s was in a state like New York, not a state like Arkansas. And I, I do want to get to more about Gingrich later on, but let, let's shift to the Clinton story uh, for a bit, because as you point out, it hardly was a given 
that Clinton would be the Democratic Party standard bearer in the 90s. It could have very easily been a very different politician, New York Governor Mario Cuomo. And I, I think this is just one of those one of the things I like about history so much are, are the what ifs. And and I think this is just to me one of the great what ifs of the last you know generation or so of American politics. Um, it, it's this it's this battle that looks like it's about to play out on the Democratic side. This defining battle that never actually happens. And it's it's sort of the story of <clears throat> the Democratic Party trying to find a sense of direction after suffering the, his latest body blow in a presidential election, the, the, the 49 state landslide lost to Reagan in 1984. And, and one of the things that emerged that year for Democrats, one of the sources of, of hope for them was Mario Cuomo, who gave the keynote address at the 84 convention. And for folks who don't remember it, um, <clears throat> I imagine this audience, they probably have a sense of it, but it really was a lot, very similar to Barack Obama's speech 20 years later in 2004 in Boston. And you saw how Barack Obama was able to just emerge to the country out of nowhere that night. And then he rides that all the way to the, the White House just a couple of years later. Well, I mean, Democrats, after Cuomo gives this speech, there's dele- there are delegates who are in tears. There are delegates, you know, saying that they, they've never been so inspired in their life. There are Democrats then for years to come just pleading with Mario Cuomo to run for president. And Mario Cuomo is, he's a, you know, he's a top to bottom liberal Democrat. Um, his speech in 1984 is, is like a Valentine to the New Deal. Um, it, it comes at the height of an era that, you know, it's the Reagan era. Reagan saying government is not the solution to our problem. Government is our problem. And there's Cuomo, this just this incredibly eloquent, mesmerizing orator, um, just 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 preaching a, a sermon about the, the, the benefit and the value of government and what it did to, to lift people's lives up. And, and so this was the idea here for, for Democrats was almost irresistible. Um, you know, Reagan was called the great communicator. Here was their great communicator. Maybe this was what they'd been missing, right? You know, they're losing these landslide elections. Maybe it's because they didn't have anybody who could communicate liberalism the way Mario Cuomo could. So that was their, that was the great hope behind Cuomo. And they're begging him to run in 1988. He doesn't run in 1988. 1992 approaches, 91, you know, the, the candidates um, get out there. Bill Clinton is out there. Bill Clinton is, is running as a, uh, you know, he's the chair of the, of the Democratic Leadership Council, which was created after that 1984 landslide to try to reorient the party toward the middle, bring back Southerners, that sort of thing. So Bill Clinton is is off running for president. Um, he's trying to convince the party he's he's safe to go with, even though you know a lot of folks in the party don't like the DLC. And then Mario Cuomo decides in the fall of 91, you know what, I'm going to take a look at this. I might get in this race. I might actually run for president. And it just sets up this this 10-week drama where, where Cuomo just takes all the oxygen in American politics, all the donors, they, 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 they freeze their money, all the endorsements, they're, they're frozen. They're ready to go to Cuomo if he gets in. The polls show him 30, 40 points ahead of Clinton uh, if he gets in the race. And this is not far away from the actual New Hampshire primary. This is not a year in advance. This is, this is a couple months away, correct? This is last minute. And, and because, you know, the other thing, in 91, of course, the year started with the Gulf War. It very, you know, it, 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 Democrats had uh, most Democrats in, in, in Congress had voted against it. Um, there were predictions it would be Vietnam in the in the desert, and instead the ground war lasted less than a hundred hours. Um, the country was amazed at how quickly the war had gone, how, how uh, relatively casualty free it was. President Bush said we had kicked the Vietnam syndrome once and for all. His approval rating hit ninety one percent. All the the big name Democrats you know, like Bill Bradley and Dick Gephardt, Al Gore, folks like that stayed out of the race. And, and then late in the year, 
the economy, the, the, the lousy economy is sort of starting to take over. Bush's approval rating is, is, is uh, falling fast and Democrats start to say maybe 92 isn't a lost cause after all. And they look at their field of candidates and they say, we don't, we don't have a strong candidate here. And that's where Cuomo enters the picture in the fall of 91 with, with New Hampshire only a few months away. Um, he says he's, taking, he's going to take a look at the race and Democrats say, OK, now we can get a real candidate. Now we can take advantage of this, uh, of, of this suddenly vulnerable Bush. And the deadline for the New Hampshire primary, for filing for the New Hampshire primary, is December 20th, 1991. And Cuomo takes this decision all the way to the wire. Um, you know, days before, he's, he's telling the press one day, my heart tells me, you know, run, Mario, run, tell the people. And, you know, a couple of days later, he sounds less inclined. And on and on it goes. He's driving Clinton crazy. Clinton's starting to go after him in public. And on the, on the filing deadline day, uh, Cuomo charters a plane. Um, it's idling at the, the uh, on the tarmac of the Albany Airport. It's going to take him to New Hampshire in about 45 minutes if he wants to to file his candidacy. And uh, you know CNN has its camera trained on the tarmac. You know is the governor going to get on it or not? And he he decides not to. It just it, it, he did not have it in him. Um, he decided to, to to make that run. And I just think it's this it's this incredible pivot point in history. I think because um, if if Cuomo runs. Um, a couple things. Number one, does he beat Bill Clinton? I mean, we'll never know. And there's a school of thought that Clinton was such a fantastic politician, he would have found a way to beat Cuomo. But the context that I that I have in the book here, that I hope people see is if Cuomo gets in that race three weeks later, Clinton's hit with the Jennifer Flowers scandal. And as part of the Jennifer Flowers scandal, she has tapes of Bill Clinton disparaging Mario Cuomo as mafioso, likening him to a mob. And I'm just imagining um, Clinton already running from behind. All of the Democrats already thinking Cuomo is the most electable. Clinton being hit with the Jennifer Flowers scandal and being on tape using what Cuomo said was an ethnic slur against him. Or he said, he said Clinton, he can save his quarter. <laughs> we tried to call to apologize. Yes, because Clinton's right. Clinton was going to exactly. Clinton was going to call to apologize, and Cuomo told the press, "Right, save his dime." He called it a cheap, uh, a cheap slur. I think was his, was his term. So, I mean, do, do we lose? Is that it for Bill Clinton right there? Is that it for the Clintons that, uh, who for the next generation uh, ended up looming over Democratic politics and American politics? Could it have been nipped in the bud right there? You know, Clinton was prepared to run to Cuomo's right. Right. He was prepared for this ideological clash when Cuomo's out of there and Paul Songus comes in as more of the centrist candidate. Clinton's got to swerve left to get rid of Songus. And that proves to be the winning track. And he wouldn't have had that track if Cuomo was the his, his opponent. That is exactly right. And I think it's the most misunderstood uh, or underappreciated aspect of Bill Clinton's victory in 92, because the, the story that gets told usually, you know, and I understand why this is the case, is, you know, the Democrats were losing presidential elections uh, in landslides. Then Bill Clinton came along and dragged them to the center and they won. And what that misses is, he never had to sell the Democratic primary electorate on moving to the center. He was going to have to if Cuomo got in. And then, like you're saying, that would have been the test. But with Cuomo out and then also with every other big name Democrat out because of the Gulf War uh, in 91. Yes, his top competition ends up being Paul Songus, a former senator from Massachusetts next door to New Hampshire. Um, who's promising to be, he, he's, his solution to Democrats losing national elections is to adopt a very Republican sounding economic message. You know, he talks about being the best friend Wall Street ever had. He talks about, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, cutting the capital gains tax, growing business, 
uh, entrepreneurship being, you know, the key to the, uh, 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 you know, to unlocking the economy. Um, it's, it's a totally, you, you look at it now, no Democrat obviously would run on that message right now. What it allowed Bill Clinton to do is rally the, the liberal coalition, the same liberal coalition that nominated Dukakis and Mondale and all of that. That same coalition looked at Songus and wanted nothing to do with him. And the only thing they were left with was Bill Clinton. So Bill Clinton ran to the left of Songus and got the Democratic nomination. Then in the general election, he artfully moved to the middle and uh, and was able to beat Bush. And so that part of history is 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 true. But um, it's untested. Could Bill Clinton have gone head to head with Mario Cuomo, the, 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 the poet of the New Deal, and, and, told, and convinced the Democratic Party it had to move toward the right? Uh, I do want to get into uh, the Ross Perot element of this race. But if I could jump ahead to... Uh, after Clinton wins, just to just to extend this thread between what if it was Cuomo? I mean, if it was Cuomo as as president, you wouldn't have had uh, you wouldn't have had a sex scandal. You wouldn't have had Monica Lewinsky. You wouldn't, and you wouldn't have been impeachment based upon that. You wouldn't have had the Whitewater type scandals. Uh, and Clinton seemed to be treated by the Republicans uh, from day one as the prototype of 1960s liberal excess. Uh, he, he was destructive to the cultural fiber of America. I mean, that was for Pat Buchanan's culture war speech in 92. And Cuomo didn't have that reputation. Cuomo was an old school Italian New Yorker. Um, so would you have had the same kind of titanic battle, titanic culture war if in a, in a Cuomo presidency that you had in the Clinton presidency? I, I, I wonder that all the time, uh, because why did Bill Clinton have that that reputation among Republicans? Um, one of the reasons I, I'm not making a, a value judgment, but it's just indisputable. One of the reasons was Hillary Clinton um, to, to go back a generation and think about what Hillary Clinton represented, the kind of change she represented culturally and politically, just as Bill Clinton's spouse in, in 1992. He was you know his term in 92 was you elect me, you get two for the price of one. He talked about putting Hillary Clinton at one point on the campaign trail. He talked about putting Hillary Clinton in the cabinet. You know, he, he said she was going to have a policy making role, you know, and Hillary Clinton was, you know, a, you know, she, she was a feminist. You know, She was a, a career woman, a feminist. She had uh, for the early part of their marriage. She had, you know, again, this is got to go back in time to think about what this meant. She had refused to take her husband's name. Uh, she went by Hillary Rodham. Uh, then. Bill Clinton was defeated for re-election as governor of Arkansas, and she said, "Okay, from now on, I'll be known as Hillary Rodham Clinton," um, and, and she took his last name. Um, but Hillary Clinton, you know, very outspoken um, feminist who was going to have a an active policymaking role in the Clinton administration. That was a major break. You know, obviously, first ladies had been influential on policy before, but not publicly in the way that uh, that Bill Clinton was promising with Hillary Clinton. And then as president delivered when he created a task force and put her in charge of it to overhaul uh, health care. And I think that's a major that's a major part of when you talk about culture wars and, and people taking sides and, and these divisions forming in the 1990s. I think Hillary Clinton um, was a major part of that. And, and Mario, I don't think Matilda Cuomo, that just that was not that would not have been the first lady she was not again not making any kind of value judgment it just would have been very different you wouldn't have had the sexual politics the sexual politics i, I think are major when it comes to the divisions in the 1990s because when you go back and, and i understand 20 years later we're now going back a lot of people are and 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 looking at the clinton impeachment a little differently but in the context of 1998 
one of the reasons Clinton was able to survive, one of the reasons he was able to rally support was this was seen as a test of, uh, of the power of the Christian right. This was seen as uh, uh, Clinton's defenders, you know, were saying that this was these were, um, you know, these were super religious prudes who were digging around in his bedroom and, and, and trying to embarrass him and, 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 and hold him to a um, to a, a, a moral standard that has nothing to do with public policy, that has nothing to do with running the country. Um, and, and, you know, we in America are better than, uh, you know. We don't need to be Puritans here. We just need competent people to govern the country and what they do in their bedroom is their own business. And there was a there was a huge, huge cultural fault line around that question of is it our business or not? That's that's a, that's how the Lewinsky scandal was interpreted by a lot of people. That basic question of is it our business um, or is it his business? And that's it. And, and the country sided with with Clinton on, on that. Um, but again, you just, you never even have that debate. I, I think I, I, you know, with Mario Cuomo, there's no reason to think you ever would have had that debate with Mario Cuomo. Well, and Clinton was pushing cultural issues in other ways too. I mean, he pushed gays in the military. He gets sort of knocked now for don't ask, don't tell and signing the defense of marriage act. But that was, those were rear guard actions after put gays in the military as a campaign pledge in 1992. Uh, and the, the third way centrist pivoting was a way to kind of mitigate where he was trying to push the country culturally. And Cuomo wasn't, was never that, I mean, he, Cuomo had these elegant speeches about abortion rights and the, and the death penalty, but he never was a real culture warrior. I think that's right. And, and if you look at, um, you talk about Bill Clinton, gays in the military, gay rights, what that grew out of was his campaign made a decision uh, in 1992 um, to cultivate the, 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 the gay political community um, for political and financial support, really financial support was, was what it was. And they raised a ton of money uh, back in 1992. And that was new. That was, you know, um, it, it had been assumed for a little while that that uh, the gay community was more democratic politically than Republican. But Dukakis, Mondale, uh, you know, had, had stayed away from it. And of course, remember, in the 1980s, it was the era of AIDS. And there was there were all sorts of. Um, you know, stigmas and phobias and, and, and things having to do with that. So in 1992, you know, Bill Clinton making that decision, that was not a, a natural decision necessarily for a, a Democratic candidate for president to make, but he made the decision. And the price that uh, gay political leaders thought they could extract from Clinton for all that help was lifting the ban um, on openly gay uh, service members. And Clinton, uh, and it, this intersected with another area where Clinton stepped on a cultural fault line, and that was his avoidance of service in Vietnam. So Clinton, the, the, the first baby boomer president in American history who had avoided service in Vietnam, that the letter you know, to Eugene Holmes had come out during the campaign, and it was, you know, and he had, he had done it in a very Clintonian way, um, but he clearly had, he clearly had, had, been, had, had not been interested in going, um, becomes president and, and thinks that with the stroke of a pen, he can issue a, an executive order and the ban on gays in the military, keep his campaign promise, and, and that'll be that. And ooh, the military, you know, led by Colin Powell, who, who at that point is still chairman of the Joint Chiefs, is probably the most popular public figure in America. It's only two years since the Gulf War. Colin Powell pushes back on him. Sam Nunn, you know, Democratic point man on defense issues in the Senate pushes back on him. And, and, in, and in his first month, the first month of the Clinton presidency is just consumed by this culture war eruption that to the right is portrayed as, you know, this this draft dodger uh, uh, liberal president with the radical feminist wife in 1960s values is 
trying to uh, uh, socially engineer our military uh, uh, to put uh, to put gays uh, in in in, uh, in the barracks. That's just, that's essentially how it's portrayed, and that was that was politically that was hot stuff in in '93. We're talking with Steve Kornacki, MSNBC political analyst and anchor and author of the new book, The Red and the Blue, here on the New Books in Politics podcast. Uh, to go back to the 1992 campaign, there are two other critical figures beyond uh, Clinton and, of course, Republican nominee, uh, incumbent George H.W. Bush. That is uh, Bush's primary challenger, Pat Buchanan, and the third party independent, Ross Perot. And both of those figures are seen as leading into Trump. Um but Perot's campaign and Buchanan's campaign were very, very different animals, correct? Yeah. I mean, eventually they were both populist uprisings. So you've, you've got that. Um, but the Perot of 1992 um, who emerged, you have to remember at the time, obviously the economy was heading south or seemed to be heading south. And there'd been a wave of, of congressional corruption scandals in the early 1990s. The one that came to uh, came to light in the in early 1992 was, you know, they called it the, the rubber check scandal. There was this special sort of private congressional bank, and, and basically the way the rules worked, where members could could bounce checks at will, and and they didn't have to pay overdraft fees. Um, it, it was it, it was a very technical thing where the taxpayers were not actually footing the bill for this. But again, I just you, you know how this is going to look. Uh, it comes out that you know Congressman X has bounced 478 checks and hasn't had to pay a dime for it. And you know, Mr. and Mrs. America, you try doing that at your local bank, see how they treat you. Um, it, it, it it caused all sorts of um, uh, rage toward Washington. There'd been the Keating Five, um, you know, influence peddling scandal a couple of years earlier uh, with the, with a group of five senators who got caught up in that. There'd been a very unpopular middle of the night congressional pay raise. You know, members voting themselves a massive pay raise that had come in the early part of the decade. And, and so Perot comes along and basically capitalizes on this idea that just Washington is broken. You know, it's these these arrogant politicians who've lost touch with the voters who who uh, who elected them. Uh, they don't know how to manage the economy They're You know, we're losing our industrial base. Um, we're running up a massive uh, a national debt that had exploded in the 1980s. And, and Ross Perot comes along. And the, the common thread to Trump is, you know, it's it's populist. He's a billionaire. It's, he's a populist billionaire. You know, that's uh, it seems to be a, a, a paradox. But but Perot kind of is that. Um, and Perot is promising to be a Mr. Fix it. You know, it's 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 without a lot of specificity. It's, you know, send me to Washington because I know how to deal with it. I know how to fix it. I solve problems. That's what I do. Um, that's what I do for a living. But uh, but Perot is different than uh, than Trump in that he's not he's not really a, 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 you know, there are some cultural issues that animate him. Um, but he's not primarily running on, on, on sort of, um, uh, uh, culture war issues. He is, he's running against trade deals. He's running against the NAFTA was proposed in 92. He's, he's running against that. So there's a bit of a, of a common thread there. Um, he's pro-choice on abortion. Um, he makes some comments early on, 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 on gays that, that strike people as very, very dated. You know, he says, says, uh, uh, at one point, he says maybe he wouldn't put a, a gay person in his cabinet because it would be too divisive for the country. There's this backlash, but he backtracks then and then goes the other way and says he, you know what, he'd integrate the military. He'd put, he'd put, uh, he'd allow gay troops in the military, no problem. So he ends up being moderate on that issue as well. Um, and he's a, he, he attracts support from across the spectrum. If you go to election day '92 when Perot ends up with 20% of the vote, you know they asked in the exit poll, "Who's your second choice?" It was basically evenly split. About half went for. Uh, uh, about half went would have gone for Clinton. About half would have gone for Bush. The interesting Doc thing Rex. to me was, 
Was that correct? It's not correct that Ross Perot threw the election to Bill Clinton. Correct. It is. It is such a. That's another one that that, that, uh, we said the you know Clinton and moving the party to the middle. That is the other one that that Ross Perot cost um, uh, cost Bush the presidency. Um, By the way, there was a. you know, the Perot campaign came in two phases in 92. He ran in the spring of 92 and he got the first place in the polls at one point. And then he started to sort of uh, to, to wilt under the, the media spotlight, dropped out in the middle of the summer, dropped out for 10 weeks and then reemerged for the final month of the campaign. Well, in the 10 weeks that Perot was out of the race, when it was just Clinton versus Bush, there was not a single poll that had Bush ahead, um, even after the Republican convention, when he got a bounce from that. Um, and not only it wasn't even close. You know, Clinton was consistently winning that race by 10 to 20 points. Um, Bush's approval rating was stuck in the 30s. Unemployment rate was spiking. Um, it's it's I, I've heard cases but you have to be, I think, pretty creative and pretty abstract to start making the case that Ross Perot cost Bush the presidency. Um, when you look at how that campaign actually played out and what the numbers were. You just right, don't see it. I can say this. I don't usually talk about my own opinions on the podcast, but I, as a a. 18 year old, that uh, was uh, no, I was 20 years old at the time. Uh, I was a strongest voter in the primary, was not happy with Bill Clinton because of, he wasn't prioritizing the deficit and therefore Perot was a logical place to go if you felt the deficit was the top priority and a good half of that pro support, as the exibles indicate, were not you know pitchfork Pat Buchanan populists but were, you know, sort of goody-goody liberal, you know, budget crunchers uh, and pro managed to pull from both sides. Right. That's that's there was disruption in both parties in the 92 primaries. I mean, Pat Buchanan running on this message of, of economic nationalism and, and, you know, reviving American manufacturing. There was an overlap there with 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 a, a chunk of the Perot constituency. No question. And Buchanan got about three and a half million votes. Uh, in the uh, in the Republican primaries, but you mentioned you know Songus and uh, and Jerry Brown on the uh, Democratic side. Jerry Brown's out there. You know this is a this is the most this is Jerry Brown and his most radical. <laughs> he'd been the governor of California for two terms in the seventies and early eighties, um, and then he'd vanished from American politics for about a decade. Um, he'd spent time in India, spent time in Japan, and comes back uh, and decides to run for president in nineteen ninety two. It just just basically on a message of blow up the system. You know, he's not going to take a, um, a contribution over one hundred dollars. He has this one eight hundred number, one eight hundred four two six eleven twelve. That was the number. Um, and at the time, you know, that this was the first it's a precursor to, to sort of Internet fundraising. Um, but it's that 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 direct appeal for small dollars and the idea of, of, of basing an entire campaign on grassroots small dollars donations. And the 800 numbers, this incredible tool for him in doing that. And then for a few years after that, every candidate is hawking an 800 number, you know, until the Internet comes along and then everything just moves over to the uh, uh, to the Internet. But but Jerry Brown had the 800 number. Um, you know, he's calling. I mean, there's debate with him and Bill Clinton. There's, there's a famous clip that still circulates online sometimes where he's, you know, he's, he's calling Bill Clinton corrupt. He's calling Hillary Clinton corrupt. He's calling his opponents bought and paid for. I mean, this was very sharp stuff. Bill Clinton hated Jerry Brown in 1992 um, because Jerry Brown was was relentless and chased him all the way to the convention in 92 and then refused to endorse him at the convention. So as so I say, you know, Buchanan had three and a half million votes on the Republican side. Jerry Brown had about uh, four million votes on the Democratic side. And Paul Songus had about four million votes on the Democratic side. So, um, 
there were constituencies uh, on the Democratic side of the aisle and the Republican side of the aisle that were very open to this guy Perot and his message of of sort of you know the, the establishments the, the uh, on each side are broken. The Democratic establishment in Washington, the Republican establishment in Washington, it's broken. And, and for different reasons, but the same basic impulse, I think they, they did all gravitate towards Perot. So if you jump ahead to the Clinton presidency, um, as the battle lines between Clinton's Democrats and Gingrich's Republicans become clear, uh, you know, Gingrich takes the House in 1994 and becomes Speaker. Um, the Demo- you start seeing more Democratic unity. You don't see Clinton having as much problems holding. He, he turns towards deficit reduction, so he gets those songs people back, takes them away from, from Perot. Uh, even though he pushes NAFTA, that doesn't alienate the songest, songest Perot voter. Uh, and the battles with the Republicans, I think, also seem to have an effect of unifying Democrats. And th- to put the spotlight back on Gingrich, what I find confusing is the Gingrich method is kind of a bust in the 90s. He doesn't pass much of the contract for America, which was the platform that the Republicans ran on in 94. He loses the uh, shut the, the showdown over the budget where he shuts down the government. Clinton wins that, uh, that face off. Uh, they push impeachment in the second term. That blows up in their face. They, they don't have a good 98 midterm. Gingrich is humiliated and is forced out as speaker. Then they have the impeachment anyway, which also is a political disaster for Republicans. And then even though Republicans win the presidency in 2000, it just sort of, won this sort of an asterisk on it because they didn't win the popular vote. But Bush doesn't run as a Gingrich-style Republican. He's running on compassionate conservatism. So after the Gingrich model doesn't work in almost any respect. How is it that you can argue Gingrich-style republicanism, Gingrich-style politics continues to be the the heart and soul of the Republican Party today? Yeah, I, I think for two reasons. I think because number one, um, it works within the Republican Party. It works in Republican primaries. I, I mean, the Gingrich message to Republicans at its core that he used to to climb from the back benches eventually to the uh, uh, to the speakership um, is that these Republican leaders aren't fighting hard enough. They're not fighting the Democrats hard enough. They're caving. They're compromising. They're giving in. And it's the same message that, that, that Ted Cruz is carrying when he calls Republicans squishes. Um, so I think that the power of that within the Republican Party um, it, it, it is something that that uh, Gingrich profited from mightily and, and lingers to this day. And it shapes the, the Republican Party that kind of emerges from uh, from that being the incentivizing force in its primaries. Um, the other aspect of it, too, is I, I think it's just the fact of the Republican Revolution in 1994 producing the first Republican Congress in 40 years, producing the first Republican Speaker of the House in 40 years, Newt Gingrich. That That is a moment, I think, and this was something Gingrich I don't think anticipated, certainly didn't anticipate. It was a moment of reassessment for the entire country about who and what the Republican Party was. And, and this is where I, I, I think I said somewhere in the book that, that Gingrich, um, in my view, his theory of politics kind of got it half right. Because Gingrich's theory of politics, like I said earlier, was if you nationalize elections, if you nationalize every election for the House, so they're no longer voting for the, 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 the candidate in their backyard, but they're voting for the party they see in Washington, 
Gingrich thought that's a can't lose proposition for Republicans because Republicans are winning all these presidential elections and to you know, make the Democrats just like George McGovern. And, and that's that. And, and Gingrich was able to do that in, in 1994 when, when you know, Bill Clinton comes to the power. It's a Democratic president, massive Democratic majorities in the House and Senate. And, and Gingrich is able to make people up and down the ballot see this out of control Bill Clinton Democratic Party that's you know spending your money like crazy, raising your taxes, culturally liberal, all of these things. And it produces that, that massive revolt in 1994. But what that did too was it nationalized the Republican Party. And the Republican Party that came into focus after the, 1990, after the Republican Revolution of 1994 is different than the Republican Party that, that tens of millions of Americans were used to thinking about. It's, they, they, they see this guy, Newt Gingrich, for the first time they're meeting Newt Gingrich. I mean, Washington knew who he was, but the average American never heard of Newt Gingrich before November 8th, um, 1994. And, and it, part of it is the way he talks, his just aggressively partisan uh, rhetoric, um, uh, rhetoric that embraces cultural warfare. The day after the 94 elections, this guy who, who America's meeting for the first time just casually refers to Bill and Hillary Clinton as counterculture McGovernics. You know, I mean, that, that's that's language, you know, Bob Dole, I mean, Bob Dole was known as a dour guy, but that's not the language Bob Dole used. It's not the language, you know, that Bob Michael, the Republican leader in the House before Gingrich ever used. You know, even Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan, extremely conservative, scared the, the daylights out of Democrats when he came along, but he had that sunny disposition. You know, Gingrich uh, is the complete opposite. He, he talks like a talk radio host and he does this every day. And so he's leading, he's causing these just... Um, culture war eruptions almost every time he opens his mouth. Um, he is surrounded by you know, the Republican leadership that emerges in this newly powerful congressional Republican Party. It's heavily Southern and it's heavily influenced and some would say even dominated by Christian conservatism. And, and you know, the, the religious right had been this rising force in the 1980s, uh, you know, Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell and all of that. And, and now in, in a way that it really hasn't been before, it's much more the face of the Republican Party, Christian conservatism. And uh, also something that comes into focus very quickly in 95 is the alliance with talk radio. You know, the way Gingrich talks is the way Rush Limbaugh talks. It's the way this whole army of conservative talk radio hosts all around the country talk. And there's been this proliferation of conservative talk radio over the last decade that is that is sort of um, it's been key to the, the evolution and transformation of the Republican Party. Well, when the Oklahoma City bombing happens in the spring of 95, you know, Bill Clinton doesn't quite blame it on talk radio, but he 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 goes after conservative talk radio, um, you know, as 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 poisoning the dialogue in this country and in all of these conservative, uh, not just conservative, but these, some of these are just right wing survivalist outlets. Um, they all come into the national spotlight for the first time, and people I think start to get this picture of conservatism and this picture of the National Republican Party that in a lot of cases it's it's totally at odds with what they thought of when they thought of Reagan and Bush senior and even Nixon for that matter, um, or the Republicans in their own backyard, places like the Northeast and, and, and it's a cultural reaction and and that I think is that's the triggering moment for what we would now call blue America. College educated professionals, you know, white collar professionals, suburbanites, folks, the Northeast, the suburbs outside Chicago, the Pacific Coast. When you look at the 1996 election, Bill Clinton's reelection, that's where the big shift is occurring. That's where the massive jumps towards the Democrats are, are, are happening. And it's it's sort of an embrace of Bill Clinton, but it's an embrace of Bill Clinton because he's not Newt Gingrich and he's not the Republicans. And I think that's when it that's when it starts to become cultural. Um and so, you know, Gingrich was able to create, you know, about half of the country that liked his version 
give or take, of the Republican Party. But about half the country had a very negative reaction to it, and, and, and it left that, you know, that stalemate of 2000. We covered a lot of ground today, but there is much, much more in the book. So uh, if you're interested, get the red and the blue. Uh, thank you so much, Steve Kornacki, for being on the show. Bill, thanks for having me. This was great. 